0: Discourses of Raphael Hithloday of the Best State of a Commonwealth, Part 2, from Utopia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by General Lee Utopia by St. Thomas More. Discourses of Raphael Hithloday of the Best State of a Commonwealth, Part 2. While I was talking thus, the counselor who was present had prepared an answer, and had resolved to resume all I had said, according to the formality of a debate, in which things are generally repeated more faithfully than they are answered, as if the chief trial to be made were of men's memories. "'You have talked prettily for a stranger,' he said, having heard of many things among us which you have not been able to consider well. But I will make the whole matter plain to you, and will first repeat in order all that you have said.' then I will show how much your ignorance of our affairs has misled you, and will, in the last place, answer all your arguments, and, that I may begin where I promised, there were four things. Hold your peace, said the cardinal. This will take up too much time. Therefore we will, at present, ease you of the trouble of answering, and reserve it to our next meeting, which shall be to-morrow, if Raphael's affairs and yours can admit of it. But Raphael, said he to me, I would gladly know upon what reason it is that you think theft ought not to be punished by death. Would you give way to it, or do you propose any other punishment that will be more useful to the public? For, since death does not restrain theft, if men thought their lives would be safe, what fear or force could restrain ill men? On the contrary, they would look on the mitigation of the punishment as an invitation to commit more crimes. I answered, It seems to me a very unjust thing to take away a man's life for a little money, for nothing in the world can be of equal value with a man's life. And if it be said that it is not for the money that one suffers, but for his breaking the law, I must say, extreme justice is an extreme injury. For we ought not to approve of those terrible laws that make the smallest offences capital, nor of that opinion of the Stoics that makes all crimes equal, as if there were no difference to be made between the killing of a man and the taking his purse, between which, if we examine things impartially, there is no likeness nor proportion." God has commanded us not to kill, and shall we kill so easily for a little money? But if one shall say, that by the law we are only forbid to kill any except when the laws of the land allow of it, upon the same grounds laws may be made, in some cases, to allow of adultery and perjury, for God having taken from us the right of disposing either of our own or of other people's lives, if it is pretended that the mutual consent of men in making laws can authorize manslaughter in cases in which God has given us no example, that it frees people from the obligation of the divine law, and so makes murder a lawful action, what is this but to give a preference to human laws before the divine? And, if this is once admitted, by the same rule men may, in all other things, put what restrictions they please upon the laws of God. If, by the Mosaical law, though it was rough and severe, as being a yoke laid on an obstinate and servile nation, men were only fined, and not put to death for theft, We cannot imagine that in this new law of mercy, in which God treats us with the tenderness of a father, he has given us a greater license to cruelty than he did to the Jews. Upon these reasons it is that I think putting thieves to death is not lawful, and it is plain and obvious that it is absurd and of ill consequence to the commonwealth that a thief and a murderer should be equally punished. For if a robber sees that his danger is the same if he is convicted of theft as if he were guilty of murder— This will naturally incite him to kill the person whom otherwise he would only have robbed, since, if the punishment is the same, there is more security and less danger of discovery, when he that can best make it is put out of the way, so that terrifying thieves too much provokes them to cruelty. But as to the question, what more convenient way of punishment can be found? I think it much easier to find out that than to invent anything that is worse. Why should we doubt but the way that was so long in use among the old Romans, who understood so well the arts of government, was very proper for their punishment. They condemned such as they found guilty of great crimes to work their whole lives in quarries, or to dig in mines with chains about them. But the method that I liked best was that which I observed in my travels in Persia, among the polylyrites, who are a considerable and well-governed people. They pay a yearly tribute to the king of Persia, but in all other respects they are a free nation, and governed by their own laws." they lie far from the sea, and are environed with hills, and, being contented with the productions of their own country, which is very fruitful, they have little commerce with any other nation, and as they, according to the genius of their country, have no inclination to enlarge their borders, so their mountains and the pension they pay to the Persian, secure them from all invasions. Thus they have no wars among them, they live rather conveniently than with splendor, and may be rather called a happy nation than either eminent or famous." For I do not think that they are known, so much as by name, to any but their next neighbours. Those that are found guilty of theft among them are bound to make restitution to the owner, and not, as it is in other places, to the prince; for they reckon that the prince has no more right to the stolen goods than the thief; but if that which was stolen is no more in being, then the goods of the thieves are estimated, and restitution being made out of them, the remainder is given to their wives and children, and they themselves are condemned to serve in the public works but are neither imprisoned nor chained, unless there happens to be some extraordinary circumstance in their crimes. They go about loose and free, working for the public. If they are idle or backward to work, they are whipped, but if they work hard, they are well used and treated without any mark of reproach. Only the lists of them are called always at night, and then they are shut up. They suffer no other uneasiness but this of constant labor, for, as they work for the public, so they are well entertained out of the public stock which is done differently in different places in some places whatever is bestowed on them is raised by a charitable contribution and though this way may seem uncertain yet so merciful are the inclinations of that people that they are plentifully supplied by it but in other places public revenues are set aside for them or there is a constant tax or poll money raised for their maintenance in some places they are set to no public work but every private man that has occasion to hire workmen goes to the marketplaces and hires them out of the public, a little lower than he would do a free man. If they go lazily about their task, he may quicken them with the whip. But this means there is always some piece of work or other to be done by them, and, besides their livelihood, they earn somewhat still to the public. They all wear a peculiar habit of one certain color, and their hair is cropped a little above their ears, and a piece of one of their ears is cut off." Their friends are allowed to give them either meat, drink, or clothes, so they are of the proper color, but it is death both to the giver and the taker, if they give them money, nor is it less penal for any free man to take money from them upon any account whatsoever, and it is also death for any of these slaves, so they are called, to handle arms. Those of every division of the country are distinguished by a peculiar mark, which it is capital for them to lay aside, to go out of their bounds, or to talk with a slave of another jurisdiction and the very attempt of an escape is no less penal than an escape itself. It is death for any other slave to be accessory to it, and if a free man engages in it he is condemned to slavery. Those that discover it are rewarded, if free men and money, and if slaves with liberty, together with a pardon for being accessory to it, that so they might find their account rather in repenting of their engaging in such a design than in persisting in it. These are their laws and rules in relation to robbery, and it is obvious that they are as advantageous as they are mild and gentle, since vice is not only destroyed and men preserved, but they are treated in such a manner as to make them see the necessity of being honest, and of employing the rest of their lives in repairing the injuries they had formerly done to society. Nor is there any hazard of their falling back to their old customs, and so little do travellers apprehend mischief from them that they generally make use of them for guides from one jurisdiction to another for there is nothing left them by which they can rob or be the better for it, since, as they are disarmed, so the very having of money is a sufficient conviction, and as they are certainly punished if discovered, so they cannot hope to escape, for their habit being in all the parts of it different from what is commonly worn, they cannot fly away, unless they would go naked, and even then their cropped ear would betray them. The only danger to be feared from them is their conspiring against the government, But those of one division and neighborhood can do nothing to any purpose unless a general conspiracy were laid amongst all the slaves of the several jurisdictions, which cannot be done, since they cannot meet or talk together, nor will any venture on a design where the concealment would be so dangerous and the discovery so profitable. None are quite hopeless of recovering their freedom, since by their obedience and patience, and by giving good grounds to believe that they will change their manner of life for the future, they may expect to at last obtain their liberty." and some are every year restored to it upon the good character that is given of them when i had related all this i added that i did not see why such a method might not be followed with more advantage than could ever be expected from that severe justice which the counsellor magnified so much to this he answered that it could never take place in england without endangering the whole nation as he said this he shook his head made some grimaces and held his peace while all the company seemed of his opinion except the cardinal who said, that it was not easy to form a judgment of its success, since it was a method that never yet had been tried. But if, said he, when sentence of death were passed upon a thief, the prince would reprieve him for a while, and make the experiment upon him, denying him the privilege of a sanctuary, and then, if it had a good effect upon him, it might take place, and, if it did not succeed, the worst would be to execute the sentence on the condemned persons at last. And I do not see, added he, why it would be either unjust, inconvenient, or at all dangerous to admit of such a delay. In my opinion the vagabonds ought to be treated in the same manner, against whom, though we have made many laws, yet we have not been able to gain our ends. When the cardinal had done, they all commended the motion, though they had despised it when it came from me, but more particularly commended what related to the vagabonds, because it was his own observation." I do not know whether it would be worth while to tell what followed, for it was very ridiculous, but I shall venture at it, for as it is not foreign to this matter, so some good use may be made of it. There was a gesture standing by that counterfeited the fool so naturally that he seemed to really be one. The jests which he offered were so cold and dull that we laughed more at him than at them. Yet sometimes he said, as it were by chance, things that were not unpleasant, so as to justify the old proverb— "'that he who throws the dice often will sometimes have a lucky hit. "'When one of the company had said that I had taken care of the thieves, "'and the cardinal had taken care of the vagabonds, "'so that there remained nothing but that some public provision might be made for the poor, "'whom sickness or old age had disabled from labor. "'Leave that to me,' said the fool, "'and I shall take care of them, "'for there is no sort of people whose sight I abhor more, "'having been so often vexed with them and their sad complaints, "'but as dolefully so ever as they have told their tale.' they could never prevail so far as to draw one penny from me, for either I had no mind to give them anything, or, when I had a mind to do it, I had nothing to give them. And they now know me so well that they will not lose their labor, but let me pass without giving me any trouble, because they hope for nothing, no more in faith than if I were a priest. But I would have a law made for sending all these beggars to monasteries, the men to the Benedictines, to be made lay brothers, and the women to be nuns. The cardinal smiled, and approved of it in jest, but the rest liked it in earnest. There was a divine present, who, though he was a grave morose man, yet he was so pleased with this reflection that was made on the priests and the monks that he began to play with the fool, and said to him, "'This will not deliver you from all beggars, except you take care of us friars.' "'That is done already,' answered the fool. "'For the cardinal has provided for you, by what he proposed for restraining vagabonds and setting them to work, for I know no vagabonds like you.' This was well entertained by the whole company, who, looking at the cardinal, perceived that he was not ill-pleased at it. Only the friar himself was vexed, as may be easily imagined, and fell into such a passion that he could not forbear railing at the fool, and calling him knave, slanderer, backbiter, and son of perdition, and then cited some dreadful threatenings out of the scriptures against him. Now the jester thought he was in his element, and laid about him freely, "'Good friar,' he said, "'be not angry, for it is written, "'In patience possess your soul.' "'The friar answered, "'For I shall give you his own words. "'I am not angry, you hangman. "'At least I do not sin in it, "'for the psalmist says, "'Be ye angry, and sin not.' "'Upon this the cardinal admonished him gently, "'and wished him to govern his passions. "'No, my lord,' he said, "'I speak not but from a good zeal, "'which I ought to have, "'for holy men have had a good zeal, "'as it is said,' the zeal of thy house hath eaten me up. And we sing in our church that those who mocked Elisha as he went up to the house of God felt the effects of his zeal, which that mocker, that rogue, that scoundrel will perhaps feel. You do this, perhaps, with a good intention, said the cardinal, but in my opinion it were wiser in you and perhaps better for you not to engage in so ridiculous a contest with the fool. No, my lord, answered he, That were not wisely done, for Solomon, the wisest of men, said, Answer a fool according to his folly, which I now do, and show him the ditch into which he will fall, if he is not aware of it. For if the many mockers of Elisha, who was but one bald man, felt the effect of his zeal, what will become of the mocker of so many friars, among whom there are so many bald men? We have, likewise, a bull, by which all that jeer us are excommunicated." When the cardinal saw that there was no end of this matter, he made a signal to the fool to withdraw, turned the discourse another way, and soon after rose from the table, and, dismissing us, went to hear causes. Thus, Mr. Moore, I have run out into a tedious story, of the length of which I had been ashamed, if, as you earnestly begged it of me, I had not observed you to hearken to it, as if you had no mind to lose any part of it. I might have contracted it, but I resolved to give it to you at large— that you might observe how those that despised what I had proposed no sooner perceived that the cardinal did not dislike it, but presently approved of it. fawned so on him and flattered him to such a degree, that they in good earnest applauded those things that he only liked in jest. And from hence you may gather how little courtiers would value either me or my counsels. To this I answered, you have done me a great kindness in this relation, for as everything has been related by you both wisely and pleasantly, so you have made me imagine that I was in my own country and grown young again, by recalling that good cardinal to my thoughts, in whose family I was bred from my childhood, and though you are, upon other accounts, very dear to me, yet you are the dearer because you honor his memory so much. But, after all this, I cannot change my opinion." For I still think that if you could overcome that aversion which you have to the courts of princes, you might, by the advice which it is in your power to give, do a great deal of good to mankind. And this is the chief design that every good man ought to propose to himself in living. For your friend Plato thinks that nations will be happy when either philosophers become kings or kings become philosophers. It is no wonder if we are so far from that happiness, while philosophers will not think it their duty to assist kings with their counsels they are not so base-minded said he but that they would willingly do it many of them have already done it by their books if those that are in power would but hearken to their good advice but plato judged right that except kings themselves become philosophers they who from their childhood are corrupted with false notions would never fall in entirely with the counsels of philosophers and this he himself found to be true in the person of dionysus Do you not think that if I were about any king, proposing good laws to him, and endeavoring to root out all the cursed seeds of evil that I found in him, I should either be turned out of his court, or at least be laughed at for my pains? For instance, what could I signify if I were about the king of France, and were called into his cabinet council, where several wise men in his hearing were proposing many expedients, as by what arts and practices Milan may be kept? At Naples, that has so often slipped out of their hands recovered, how the Venetians, and after them the rest of Italy, may be subdued, and then how Flanders, Brabant, and all Burgundy, and some other kingdoms which he has swallowed already in his designs, may be added to his empire. One proposes a league with the Venetians, to be kept as long as he finds his account in it, and that he ought to communicate counsels with them, and give them some share of the spoil till his success makes him need or fear them less, and then it will be easily taken out of their hands." Another proposes the hiring the Germans and the securing the Switzers by pensions. Another proposes the gaining the emperor by money, which is omnipotent with him. Another proposes a peace with the king of Aragon, and, in order to cement it, the yielding up the king of Navarre's pretensions. Another thinks that the prince of Castile is to be wrought on by the hope of an alliance, and that some of his courtiers are to be gained to the French faction by pension. The hardest point of all is what to do with England. A treaty of peace is to be set on foot, and, if their alliance is not to be depended on, yet it is to be made as firm as possible, and they are to be called friends, but suspected as enemies. Therefore the Scots are to be kept in readiness, and to be let loose upon England on every occasion, and some banished nobleman is to be supported underhand, for by the league it cannot be done avowedly, who has a pretension to the crown, by which means that suspected prince may be kept in awe." Now when things are in so great a fermentation, and so many gallant men are joining councils, how to carry on the war, if so mean a man as I should stand up and wish them to change all their councils, to let Italy alone and stay at home, since the kingdom of France was indeed greater than could be well governed by one man, that therefore he ought not to think of adding others to it, and if, after this, I should propose to them the resolutions of the Icorians, a people that lie on the southeast of Utopia, who long ago engaged in war in order to add to the dominions of their prince another kingdom, to which he had some pretensions by an ancient alliance. This they conquered, but found that the trouble of keeping it was equal to that by which it was gained, that the conquered people were always either in rebellion or exposed to foreign invasions, while they were obliged to be incessantly at war, either for or against them, and consequently could never disband their army, that in the meantime they were oppressed with taxes." their money went out of the kingdom, their blood was spilt for the glory of their king without procuring the least advantage to the people, who received not the smallest benefit from it even in time of peace, and that, their manners being corrupted by a long war, robbery and murders everywhere abounded, and their laws fell into contempt, while their king, distracted with the care of two kingdoms, was the less able to apply his mind to the interest of either. When they saw this, and that there would be no end to these evils, they by joint counsels made an humble address to their king, desiring him to choose which of the two kingdoms he had the greatest mind to keep, since he could not hold both, for they were too great a people to be governed by a divided king, since no man would willingly have a groom that should be in common between him and another. Upon which the good prince was forced to quit his new kingdom to one of his friends, who was not long after dethroned, and to be contented with his old one, To this I would add that after all those warlike attempts, the vast confusions, and the consumption both of treasure and of people that must follow them, perhaps upon some misfortune they might be forced to throw up all at last. Therefore it seemed much more eligible that the king should improve his ancient kingdom all he could, and make it flourish as much as possible, that he should love his people, and be beloved of them, that he should live among them, govern them gently, and let on their kingdoms alone, since that which had fallen to his share was big enough, if not too big for him." "'Pray, how do you think "'would such a speech as this be heard?' "'I confess,' said I, "'I think not very well.' "'But what,' said he, "'if I should sort with another kind of ministers, "'whose chief contrivances and consultations "'were by what art the prince's treasures "'might be increased, "'where one proposes raising the value of specie "'when the king's debts are large, "'and lowering it when his revenues were to come in, "'that so he might both pay much with a little, "'and in a little receive a great deal?' Another proposes a pretense of a war, that money might be raised in order to carry it on, and that such a peace be concluded as soon as that was done, and this with such appearances of religion as might work on the people, and make them impute it to the piety of their prince, and to his tenderness for the lives of his subjects. A third offers some old musty laws that have been antiquated by long disuse, and which, as they had been forgotten by all the subjects, so they had also been broken by them, and proposes the levying the penalties of these laws, that, as it would bring in a vast treasure, so there might be a very good pretense for it, since it would look like the executing a law and the doing of justice. A fourth proposes the prohibiting of many things under severe penalties, especially as such were against the interest of the people, and then the dispensing with these prohibitions upon great compositions, to those who might find their advantage in breaking them. This would serve two ends, both of them acceptable to many, for as those whose avarice led them to transgress would be severely fined, so the selling licenses, dear, would look as if a prince were tender to his people, and would not easily, or at low rates, dispense with anything that might be against the public good. Another proposes that the judges must be made sure, that they may declare themselves always in favor of the prerogative, that they must be often sent for to court, that the king may hear them argue those points in which he is concerned, since, how unjust soever any of his pretensions may be, yet still some one or other of them, either out of contradiction to others, or the pride of singularity, or to make their court, would find out some pretense or other to give the king a fair color to carry the point. For if the judges but differ in opinion, the clearest thing in the world is made by that means disputable, and truth being once brought in question, the king may then take advantage to expound the law for his own profit. While the judges that stand out will be brought over, either through fear or modesty, and they being thus gained, all of them may be sent to the bench to give sentence boldly, as the king would have it. For fair pretenses will never be wanting when sentence is to be given in the prince's favor. It will either be said that equity lies of his side, or some words in the law will be found sounding that way, or some forced sense will be put on them. And when all other things fail, the king's undoubted prerogative will be pretended, as that which is above all law, and to which a religious judge ought to have a special regard." Thus all consent to that maxim of Crassus, that a prince cannot have treasure enough, since he must maintain his armies out of it, that a king, even though he would, can do nothing unjustly, that all property is in him, not excepting the very persons of his subjects, and that no man has any other property but that which the king, out of his goodness, thinks fit to leave him, and they think it is the prince's interest that there be as little of this left as may be. As if it were his advantage that his people should have neither riches nor liberty, since these things make them less easy and willing to submit to a cruel and unjust government. Whereas necessity and poverty blunts them, makes them patient, beats them down, and breaks that height of spirit that might otherwise dispose them to rebel. Now what if, after all these propositions were made, I should rise up and assert that such counsels were both unbecoming a king and mischievous to him and that not only his honour but his safety consisted more in his people's wealth than in his own. If I should show that they choose a king for their own sake, and not for his, that by his care and endeavours they may be both easy and safe, and that, therefore, a prince ought to take more care of his people's happiness than of his own, as a shepherd is to take more care of his flock than of himself, it is also certain that they are much mistaken that think the poverty of a nation is a mean of the public safety who quarrel more than beggars, who does more earnestly long for a change than he that is uneasy in his present circumstances, and who run to create confusions with so desperate a boldness as those who, having nothing to lose, hope to gain by them. If a king should fall under such contempt or envy that he could not keep his subjects in their duty, but by oppression and ill-usage, and by rendering them poor and miserable, it were certainly better for him to quit his kingdom than to retain it by such methods as make him— while he keeps the name of authority, lose the majesty due to it. Nor is it so becoming the dignity of a king to reign over beggars as over rich and happy subjects. And therefore Fabricius, a man of a noble and exalted temper, said, he would rather govern rich men than be rich himself, since for one man to abound in wealth and pleasure when all about him are mourning and groaning is to be a gaoler and not a king. He is an unskillful physician that cannot cure one disease without casting his patient into another. So he that can find no other way for correcting the errors of his people but by taking from them the conveniences of life, shows that he knows not what it is to govern a free nation. He himself ought rather to shake off his sloth, or to lay down his pride, for the contempt or hatred that his people have for him takes its rise from the vices in himself. Let him live upon what belongs to him without wronging others, and accommodate his expenses to his revenue. Let him punish crimes, and by his wise conduct, Let him endeavor to prevent them, rather than be severe when he has suffered them to be too common. Let him not rashly revive laws that are abrogated by disuse, especially if they have been long forgotten and never wanted, and let him never take any penalty for the breach of them to which a judge would not give way in a private man, but would look on him as a crafty and unjust person for pretending to it. To these things I would add that law among the Macarians, a people that lived not far from Utopia, by which their king, on the day on which he began to reign, is tied by an oath, confirmed by solemn sacrifices, never to have at once above a thousand pounds of gold in his treasures, or so much silver as is equal to that in value. This law, they tell us, was made by an excellent king who had more regard to the riches of his country than to his own wealth, and therefore provided against the heaping up of so much treasure as might impoverish the people. He thought that moderate sum might be sufficient for any accident, if either the king had occasion for it against the rebels, or the kingdom against the invasion of an enemy, but that it was not enough to encourage a prince to invade other men's rights, a circumstance that was the chief cause of his making that law. He also thought that it was a good provision for that free circulation of money so necessary for the course of commerce and exchange, and when a king must distribute all those extraordinary accessions that increase treasure beyond the due pitch, it makes him less disposed to oppress his subjects." Such a king as this will be the terror of ill men, and will be beloved by all the good. End of Discourses of Raphael Hithlode of the Best State of a Commonwealth, Part 2